Good morning. Um, <laughs> it's so hard for me not to say anything about last night, but especially if my dad's here. He's a big K-State fan, and my sister and I have been giving him such a hard time because we've won last three times, and he's been so graceful. He hasn't given me a, really a hard time at all, so I appreciate that, Dad. Um, you know, you st- <laughs> Yeah, anyhow. Um, <laughs> I'm holding back, choking back tears now. Um, I, my name's Steve. Uh, I am not the usual. I'm not an elder. I'm not a deacon. Um, I'm actually the youth director here at Lion and the Lamb. Uh, Mike is our teaching elder, so if you're checking us out, visiting, I would definitely encourage you guys to come back again and uh, listen to Mike or one of the other elders here at Lion and Lamb Church. Um, also, I, I don't know if this was announced or not, and Stan, I apologize, but um, a couple who's been going here for a while that I'm friends with, Jared and Katie Bowes, gave birth Friday to... A boy, and I actually got it messed up on the form. Uh, John Bose, his dad is a little bit of a jokester. He said it was John Rockwell Bose, and they're going to call him J Rock. And I completely believed him that it was Rockwell was his middle name, but I guess it's John and Rosa or Jocelyn Jude Bose. So they gave birth. He's healthy. Um, definitely answered a prayer there, and and she's resting and doing well at home. So um, <clears throat> today. I was going to shave off a little bit of time, um, but I probably will go over the amount of time that I usually would teach just because um, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about this subject that I'll be talking about today. Um, today is a continuation of a sermon I actually gave. It was Super Bowl Sunday. It's about a month and a half ago. Um, and, and where I got this idea is I, it, was, it was basically born from an accident. Um, I had gone to Covenant Theological Seminary to take a winter term class um, and it turned out that I had signed, I had showed up for the wrong week, um, and I had to rush to find another class. And it was this class called Disciplines of Grace. And in it, he kind of he he kind of brought up this issue of idol worship. And 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 so um, this sermon uh, is called it's it's a series called American Idols. Um, the first one was called They Will Become Like That What They Worship, and this one's actually called um, Removing Gods. And that's a small G and Embracing God. Um, big capital G. Um, this, I, I, I feel like I need to give some credit where credit's due. I would like to think that this was, you know, through extensive biblical research that I've, I found these themes out. I haven't. Um, one is by a guy named an author, New Testament author, G.K. Beale. He's actually um, at the grad school or in New Testament studies at Wheaton um, Seminary or College. Um, he wrote a book, um, They Will Become Like they wor- like That Which They Worship. I, I'm messing up the title. Um, he helped shape and inform this perspective that I've taken. And then also, um, this is a really easy read, and I would encourage you guys, if this kind of sparks something in your hearts, um, to read this. Check it out. Timothy Keller. It's called Counter- Counterfeit Gods. Um, this guy's a pastor at Redeemer um, Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, he's had a huge influence on the church in New York. Um, very prophetic of what he's saying, just as far as removing uh, false gods from our lives. And, and this book especially is what uh, had an impact on me. Um, what I had stated in the first sermon was this, is that Scripture has this constant theme of, of that when people of, of, of God embrace idols and when they create these false idols in their lives, that they actually become spiritually like these these things. So I, I use the example of Isaiah 44, 9, in which he, he, Isaiah is talking about the folly of idol worship. And he's saying that as, you, as the people of Israel begin to fashion these gods, they begin to carve uh, noses and they begin to fashion ears out of wood, that their, their hearts and their, their ears and their mouths and their eyes spiritually are becoming like these idols. 
And this isn't something that's just found in actually just Isaiah 44. It's a theme that's constantly brought up over and over again, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Psalms, whether it's Ezekiel, whether it's in the New Testament with Paul and Romans. It's this constant theme that you become like that which you worship. And so I kind of asked yourself, or asked you guys this question is, then what is it that you're becoming like? And so today, um, I wanted to look at a story that I think moves us past, in, the, in part two of this, this series, moves us past identifying maybe some of these idols, and then starting to talk about how do we unmask these idols? How do we remove them from our lives? Idol worship is, is, is scary for a Christian because it runs so deep. Um, it's one of the hardest things. And for me, personally, it brought up a lot of stuff that, that I was working through that I didn't maybe realize was there, and I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit. And so the story, or the title of the sermon, like I said, is Removing Gods and Embracing God. Um, so would you pray with me as we begin? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just thank you, um, Lord, for this day. It's beautiful weather um, as the sun comes out and melts the snow, and we can be reminded that it is spring, and Lord, that you've given us seasons for a reason. Um, Lord, there's refreshment and beauty in the changing of seasons, and they all point back to you, God. God, that you just didn't create just one season and one temperature, and you gave us seasons to remind us of how sovereign you are and how you're working in creation in all things. And Fathers, especially as we in, enter into this text of Genesis 22, Lord, that you would just be shaping our hearts, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, Lord, that we would be moved, that we wouldn't ignore some barriers that we have in our lives that are preventing us from full embracing of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, um, I know it sounds crazy, but I know, um, you know, cave basketball and all those things in life, they disappoint us, but the gospel of Christ does not disappoint at all. It completely satisfies, and let us have that in perspective. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and in his name we pray, amen. Um, I'm taking a class right now at Covenant Theological Seminary called Christian Worship, and it's an online class, and we have this forum um, in which we're, we're given a question, and we're supposed to respond, and, and we kind of bounce ideas off each other on this discussion forum. And the first question that, he, that the professor asked is, is what is worship? And, and you think, you know, you have all these, these guys in seminary that are pursuing Masters of Divinity, and, you know, you would get such a plurality of... of, of, of definitions and you do. And in fact, if I was to ask you guys and go in each round, and if we had time to say, what, what is worship to you? I'm sure that it would be very different from one person to the next, that this, this view of worship is, 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 is vast. It's, it's, it can be vague, um, but I think the Bible does speak quite a bit about the idea of worship. But what I really want to look at, and what the definition I want to work out of, is actually the root word worship which is actually an old English word, which means two things, worth and shape. It was basically combined, and, and those two words form the, the word that we have today called worship. So worth and shape, and the idea is this, that everything that, or anything that we have or intrinsic value or worth to will shape us. So for example, if you find worth in your job, and, and in your career, you'll be shaped by that career. If you find worth in money, you'll be shaped by a pursuit of money. If you, if you, if you um, find worth in being needed and valued, you'll do things out of the, the, the shaping of needing those things. And if you worship God and you find worth in your relationship to God, you'll be shaped and changed by that, by that worth. So whatever you find worthy or worth is what shapes you. 
That's important because, guys, the New Testament, or just the story of Scripture is very clear that, that when we, we embrace God and when we encounter God, He doesn't say, I just want some of you, I want all of you. I um, mean, what that looks like is that we have a tendency to segment ourselves. So we go to church on Sunday, and maybe we go to Sunday evening church um, or a Sunday evening service, or we go to Bible studies at night or small groups, and we go to Bible studies on Wednesdays, and we go in prayer groups. We have our Devo times, and we do those things, and we say, okay, we're good. But God's saying, no, that's not, that's not it. I want all of you. It's that sort of concept of all of life worship. And what gets in the way of that sort of all-of-life worship is the fact that we, we romanticize these idols in our lives that prevent or take things away from worshiping God. Um, I think I touched on this actually on that first sermon that I gave, but we are created in the image of God. And what that means is that we are image bearers. We are, imi- we are bearing the image of God. And, and, and people have talked about this, but essentially no matter what we do, whether it's Christian worship or reflecting the image of God, we are always bearing some image in us. That's who we are. We cannot bear, we cannot not bear some sort of image. And so we're called to bear the image of God, but with the, the problem with idolatry and, and worshiping idols is that, like I said, they run so deep and they're attached to so many emotions and there's such a driving force behind us that when God calls us to, f- to full authentic worship, it can frustrate us, it can confuse us, and it can, it can really um, hinder us um, and so if you would, turn your Bibles to Genesis 22, and I'll get started. Um, remember this, that, that God said in the very first commandment, in fact, I was looking outside today, um, just right here on this table is a list of the Ten Commandments, and the very first one is that you shall have no other God before me. And that is such a daunting commandment, and it frames the rest of the commandments, but thank God that he didn't give us just that, that statement and not examples in the Bible. And so that's why we're going to Genesis 22, because uh, the story of Abraham offering up Isaac I think, really points and frames this issue of idolatry. So, um, if you would, if you, um, turn there. Um, and we're just going to start at verse 1. And I'm actually going to go to 18, or 19. I want to read the whole story. I have no intentions of dissecting verse by verse. Um, I'll admit this is a little light on Scripture as far as spending time in it, but um, this story is, is awesome. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of his mountains, of which I shall tell you. <clears throat> so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offerings and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I, the boy, will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of the men together, and Isaac said to his father, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb of a burnt offering, my son. So they went of them together. And then when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you and not withhold your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and looked, behold, behind him was a ram 
caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took a ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. <clears throat> and so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it said on this day on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. And I'm going to stop there actually, because I think that, that, that does enough for what I wanted to talk about. Like I said, I have no intention of dissecting the story. And I, I called Mike on Friday. I just wanted to make sure um, that I wasn't going to be running into what he had been talking about. Um, if you have been here, Mike has been going through Genesis um, uh, specifically with the, um, the promise given to Abraham by God. Um, a little side note, you know, we tend to stay away from Genesis and the prophets and especially the Old Testament because it's intimidating, which is unfortunate because... A story like this, is, I mean, there's gold nuggets waiting to be discovered, so I would just encourage you Christians to, to really go into this, these sections because, like I was saying, Mike has been going through Genesis. He's talking about God's relationship to Abraham. And up to this point, what we've seen is that God has made this promise to Abraham. He says, I will bless you by giving you offspring or a son that will be a light to the nations, that will be a blessing to the world, that through you, you will have the solution to basically sin, which started back at the garden. But this is, a, this is a paradox. And what makes it such a paradox is that the scripture talks about it um, in Genesis is that Abraham and his wife are advanced in age, and up to this point she's been barren. So we have this idea. Here's God's promise, and here's the reality, which is that they're, they're really old, and, and she up to this point has been barren. But, as Mike has pointed out, in every, every encounter, God has blessed him. He's, he's increased his land. He's increased his resources. He's increased his men. And so we know that God has been uh, faithful to Isaac, or Abraham, in blessing him up to this point. And so there's this paradox. And so we wonder, how is this going to be resolved? And the resolution finally comes in chapter 21, when finally, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, finally give birth to Isaac. And Isaac is the fulfillment of this promise, and they're excited. And as if anybody, I, I, I can't relate, but if at this point, if you've ever had a child, you know, I'm sure Jared and Katie can, how, how exciting that is. And especially because these people had all these odds against them, and God has fulfilled this promise. And it's, you know, I was thinking about this story. You know, if this, if this um, story would have stopped at 21, and we would have cut out Abraham and Isaac, you know, Abraham offering Isaac up, we would have glazed over it and we thought, nothing wrong with that, you know, because we have the fulfillment of the promise of Isaac being born and then whatever happens after that, we would have been completely okay. But God doesn't stop there. That's not what God is driving at because when he talks about that, that first commandment of having no other God before me, I think he has Abraham in mind here. In, in chapter 22, God does something shocking. Let's be honest we can sometimes take a step back out of Scripture and, and, and look at the story in its whole entirety and say, of course, God, that's exactly what you're going to do. But could you imagine being a friend of Abraham or Sarah and, and, and hearing that God, or one of his, his men that followed him, and hearing that God had commanded Abraham to offer up his son Isaac? It's easy to kind of put ourselves in the perspective of, of the reader, but I can only begin to imagine what was going through Abraham's mind um, as, he, as he's been given this child of promise and, and told to offer up his son Isaac. Um, one thing that we need to understand about the culture of the time, and I think Mike has done a point of, of emphasizing this, is that a son was of extreme value in a patriarchal society in Near Eastern times, at that time of Abraham. 
that, that your identity, that your worth, and that your value was on your ability to reproduce, especially sons, because they were the ones who would carry on your legacy. That They were the ones that carried on your inheritance. They were the ones that, essentially, that was your value as a person was your, your ability to give birth as a woman and to have a boy, a son, as a man. And so Isaac, now, when we start to talk about idol worship, was everything Abraham could have held into his hands as far as an idol. He basically, and this is what I want to get to, is God was, was basically saying, drawing the line in the sand of saying, I've been good to you, I've blessed you, and now I'm asking you to do something that is profound. I want you to offer your son, I want you to give your son back to me. At least that's, that's the way the story looks at it to this point. And, and Abraham is, is given this choice because he could have done what so many of us probably would have done or would have been easy to do and say, uh-uh, I don't think so. You've been promised me this. You've been promising this to me. And finally it's here. And I'm not going to give it to you. And you know what, Abraham, the unfortunate thing about it is if he would embrace that, I, the thing about idols and making sons or whoever idols is that they never pan out. But Abraham complies. The text doesn't give light as to what thoughts were in Abraham's mind or the extent that he processes things, but we know, um, we know more than anything that he just complied. That, that it says in, in the text that on, on the mo- in the morning, the next day, he rose and he just went on. And I, I find that remarkable. I find that completely faithful about Abraham. Um, a Danish, well, Danish, a Danish Christian philosopher, Seren Kierkegaard, wrote a book. Um, I first heard about him in college. I've never read, I've read bits and pieces. It's actually pretty hard to read um, for me. Uh, it's called Fear and Trembling. And essentially, what he was writing about is, is he was writing about the story of Abraham offering up Isaac. And, and, and Kierkegaard was a Christian existentialist. I'm not going to get into what that means. But essentially, he thought that, that what God was asking Abraham to Abraham's knowledge was absurd. And so when Abraham willingly offered up his son, Isaac, that he was doing so, not able to comprehend what was going on, but it was an exercise in absurdity of faith. And that's what that Kierkegaard goes on to talk about what faith is. I think he got it dead wrong. And as much as I appreciate Seren and what he has done for Christianity, especially during the Enlightenment and humanist, or the humanist revolution of the time in Europe, I think he got this issue dead wrong. I don't think this was an exercise in absurdity. I think Abraham knew exactly what God was saying and asking him that he was essentially saying, who is it that you follow? Who is it that you worship? Is it me or is it your son Isaac? Is it this fulfillment of this promise which you can latch on to and put all your hope and all your trust and all your faith in finally getting this, this child that's going to pass on all these blessings or will you offer him up and, and worship to me? <clears throat> in verse 5, I think Abraham trusted God to the point of... of, of of a, a phenomenal belief, but if you look at the verse, he says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I don't think Abraham was being deceitful at all. In fact, in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, it referenced the fact that Abraham believed that, believed that if God had commanded him to kill Isaac, or sacrifice Isaac, I should say, that he would have raised him back to life. And I find that too um, absolutely um, um, transformational, and the reason why is, is because I think 
he had such an astounding faith in God and God's promises. And, and this is a side note to the application that I wanted to talk about, but um, I think it was Sean Schwinson. We were in a Bible study one time. It was really profound. He says, you know, sometimes when I'm, when I'm frustrated in life, I can look back in my life and see all the promises that God has made and how he's been good to me, and I can see how I'm a blessed man. And it's the idea of counting your blessings. And I know that sounds really simple, but sometimes we just need to take a step back when we're depressed or we're frustrated um, or we're, we're, just, we're just irritated by what's going on in our lives and to see the ways in which God has blessed us and to count our blessings and say, God, you have been so good to me. Of course I trust you. And I know that you want to take care of me um, in so many different ways. And I think this is probably for Abraham that was that was affirming to him in this moment of trusting God to even bring him back to the point of death, is that Abraham was able to go back through his life and see all the ways that God had been faithful to him, count his blessings and count the answers to his promise, and and affirm what God had planned to do on that altar. Abraham trusted God. Abraham knew exactly what was required of him, that God requires complete devotion. If Abraham wasn't willing to be completely devoted to God, then God wasn't able to bless him in the, the way that God wanted to bless him. But Abraham complies, believing that God is both holy and gracious. And when Abraham ties Isaac, um, an angel of the Lord stops him and says, Do not lay uh, your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The angel is quite simply saying, Abraham, I know now whom you love the most. I know exactly who you're faithful to. Coming back to the issues of idols, if you were to examine your own life, could, could God say the same thing about you? I mean, honestly, do you fear the Lord to the point of, of, of obedience to his word? And, and this, is, this, is, this is going back to this issue of idols. See, if, if Abraham would have kept on to Isaac, I think he would have been responding and parenting. And this is kind of when parents make idols out of their kids. This is the way that it, it sort of works themselves out in two ways. One is that he would, have de- he would have demanded perfection from Isaac. And so, so he would have been overbearing, he would have over-disciplined him, and he would have been completely let down when Isaac didn't follow um, his commands because his longing for perfection that's only found in God would have fallen short on, on Isaac when he fashioned that idol. That's the thing about idols is that they, they are unnatural, that they're artificial, that they're not real that they give us this false sense of reality and a false sense of worth that really isn't true. So he would have either been overbearing and over-disciplining him, demanding perfection from Isaac, or he would have been a lazy, lazy, disobedient father. He would have, he would have, he would have not disciplined him. He would have, he would have cared what, he would have cared, he could care less of what Isaac is doing because he was so worried about just pleasing his kid that if he was to discipline him and Isaac was to respond negatively, he would have so wanted that loss of separation of fellowship with his own son because of that idol had been removed or because that idol had been um, non-infirming that he would have that he wouldn't have stand it so he would neglect his child and and, and so we can begin to see how that works itself out um, in parenting relationships I don't want to go there but um, thank God Abraham did what was required of him and that he was faithful just the way that God had been faithful to him so the question really is, in light of this story, what is the message of Scripture bringing to us on this issue of idolatry? Where am I going with this? So, you know, the, the classic question, so what? What does this mean for my life? Especially when all there's these other elements that are going on that Mike's going to touch on. What does idolatry have to do with this? And how can we respond according to the truth of Scripture? And I'd like to suggest three things. 
first acknowledge what are the things that motivate you and find worth or value, and then do these drives and desires match up to that in which God has called us? Guys, man, I don't think we reflect enough about what's going on in our lives. And you know, the thing about idol worship is, is this, is that it's, it's incredibly painful. Um, when you start talking about what drives us, what motivates us, what we find worth in, when we start really getting to who we are as a person and how we operate as people, uh, when you start finding out f- that there are idols in our lives, it gets really personal and really painful. I talked about that um, when I was in St. Louis and we were going through this class, and he was the pastor, it's Scotty Smith. He's a, he's a, a pastor at a church in, in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, he started talking about you know his own life and how he was being a pastor because he, he just needed to be wanted by a congregation. And I could completely relate to that in just a moment of honesty because that wanting and longing is something that I have. And so <clears throat> I wasn't, I had realized that I, I was doing ministry for the sake of maybe being wanted or maybe being needed by a congregation in the hopes of that that would fulfill this idol that was in my life that God was saying, Steve, I want that. And so what I talked about is that Grace and I are going in May to St. Louis to Covenant Theological Seminary, and I knew God was calling that, but at the same time, there was this alluring idol of wanting to be valued and worth something here and staying here. So I was looking for these little back doors to kind of, you know, say, oh, it's not going to work out. You know, Grace gets pregnant. We've got to stay here. Sorry. You know, job, you know, I got offered actually uh, an advancement my, with my job in the city. Oh, they're going to give me more money. Better stay here. All those sort of things, because that's how sneaky idols are. But you know what? I would have never realized that if I just spent five, just five minutes of my life examining what drives me, what motivates me as a person. There are so many different idols, and they manifest themselves so many ways. And there's three that I was thinking of off the top of the head, off my head. Um, The first one is this, relational idolatry. Are you, quite honestly, are you codependent? Do you need relationships so badly and at all costs that you're willing to do anything just to maintain a relationship, either whether it's controlling them or being controlled by them? Do you live your life through your kids, bending to their demands because you can't handle the loss of their acceptance? Do you control them or seek to control them because you find self-worth in being totally immersed in their lives so you don't have to deal with the pain of your own experiences? I, you know, I find that so true in a lot of Christian homes that parents tend to be either completely overbearing or they just kind of check out completely on their kids' lives. And I really think that it goes back to, for some people, this relational idolatry of just needing to be dependent. That they either enter, put themselves in abusive relationships or they're the abusers because they haven't uh, found their worth and their, their identity in Christ, which I'll touch on in the final point. What about religious idols? Do you adhere to a, a strict sense of moralism or uh, legalism in the pursuit of just making sure that you operate out of the right doctrines because it just compels you that you have to be so right and that you limit your perspective to only those that are right around you and that you hold everybody else at arm's length that don't agree with your set of beliefs? Um, <clears throat> Finally, uh, Timothy Keller brought this up in Counterfeit Gods. He calls them deep labels, or idols, I'm sorry. I think he calls them that um, because they're probably the hardest ones that people struggle with, and they actually run the deepest in our souls. Um, But they're the ones that really motivate us. I know this is the one that was hitting hard for me. It's, It's things like this, that I only have worth, 
if I have power or influence over someone else or other or another person. Life only has worth if I am valued, respected, or loved by others. Life only has meaning if I have a certain level of comfort or the right car or the perfect house or the best clothes or whatever. Life only has meaning if I have mastery over my life in a certain area, whether it be work, sports, a certain hobby. You know, the list goes on. But in, in order to flee from these idols, guys, we have to acknowledge that they're there. They're like the monster that just hides in the shadows of our spiritual lives that just, that just need to be recognized. Um, they're all things that are basically taking the place of worshiping God and allowing God to have full reign of our lives. Once we have identified those, those idols and those idol structures, from moving from removing God's the little g to embracing God, guys, we have to confess. Um, I talked to Mike a while ago about this word. Uh, he doesn't like the word. I think that we've neglected it, and I, it is overused, and it is abused. But the word is, is biblical, and it's repent. I think, I think that there's nothing wrong with saying that, especially for my generation to say it, because it's a word that's been lost in our ears. But not only do we need to confess our sins, but we need to repent of the idols that we have in our lives. First John uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Um, I don't know about some of you, but this verse has been so refreshing to me and so um, beautiful to me because it, it says that as long as I'm in a state of reflection and confessing my sins to God, that I have that lost, that, that lost fellowship with him restored. It's not this set of system of standards that if you have to do one, two, three, and four to finally have fellowship with them, it's immediate. Confession of sins brings us fellowship with God. There is nothing, there is nothing more cleansing and refreshing than that in Scripture, than knowing the, the, un, the, the sort of unstringed or no strings attached sort of grace that God bestows upon us. So find those, those idols in your life, identify them, and then confess them and just re- repent. Repent is that idea of turning, doing a 180, doing an about face to sin. You're going in the direction. You are motivated by money. All you do is, is you want more money and money's not enough. So you, you play the lottery or you, you are selfish and you, you, you know, you're shrewd and you cheat people out of money or whatever. You, you're going in that direction and that's an about face. And you, you, you flee from that idol of pursuit of money because that's a sense of security and you go towards Christ. And I think the third point that I wanted to bring up, and this isn't by any means exhaustive, but the one that has been really refreshing to me is to finally realize and embrace your place and your identity in Christ. And for a moment, if, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're missing out. Because the only reassuring thing about removing idols in our lives for a Christian is the fact that Christ has finished all those things at the cross. If you would, turn to Colossians 3, 1 through 5. And, and now that I'm looking at my notes, I, I didn't actually write it in, in. I usually copy and paste the scripture so I can read. I don't have that, so I apologize, I apologize for that. But John Piper has a great quote. And I think it's, it's dealing with the, our relationship with Christ. And, and he says this. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I mean, how beautiful of a statement is that? Because that is so true that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We are image bearers and we are called to have satisfaction and rest in Christ. We've been going through, and the ladies went through this at the retreat um, by Josh McDowell. And, and he talks about, and, and I remember uh, talking with Dan Billen later on that day or that night. He gives us a list 
of all the things that we are in Christ and all of the labels that we are. And guys, the list is exhaustive. I think there was over 20 things that we are now considered now that we are in Christ, whether it's being righteous or being chosen or being loved by God, all these things that we are now found to be in Christ because of, of our chosen status with God. Guys, we have, when we accept Christ, we are meshed with Him. So we don't have to go back to these idle structures in our lives. We don't have to entertain them over and over again because now we are a new creation in Christ. Um, here's the thing I wanted to, I, a little, mm, a little hobby horse or, or whatever, I don't know what to call it, about Christian, Christian living or the Christian perspective in America. We tend to think with these issues because maybe I've, I've maybe pulled... Uh, the surface on some of these things, we, we tend to think that there's a silver bullet with these issues. And what I mean is this, is that if we could just read, um, I was in the Christian bookstore yesterday, and I was just going through the Christian living section, and there are books on 12 steps to this, and 7 steps to that, and 5 steps, and 3 steps, and there's a book on, on sexual addictions, and there's a book on pride, and there's a book on relationships, and there's a book on you name it, and there's conferences for everything that, everything under the moon, and, and we're all just in it... it Man, so many people have gotten rich on this pursuit of a silver bullet that if we just read that one book, if we listen to that one sermon, if we go to that one workshop, that we'll be healed. And guys, the only silver bullet there is is Christ. I, I don't know how to say it other than that. And I, and, and I can only say that and operate out of the perspective of a guy that was looking for the silver bullet. But the only silver bullet is our identity in Christ. That is it. That we can't, you can't read that one book that's going to remove that idol from your life or that one sin pattern of your life. It's not going to work. Until you've embraced the full gospel of Christ, it's not, it, there is no silver bullet other than him. And I think this is what Paul is saying. Paul didn't list out five steps to Christian freedom. He just basically said, we are new creations in Christ. Our identity, our worth, our value are found in Christ. And in, in fact, he says, Paul says to set our minds and thoughts on things above. Guys, in the bottom line, everything starts and ends with Christ. And it's the fact that we are new creations in Christ. And, and one of the biggest things with idols is this, is that, that once we've removed them, and this has been for me, I don't feel like I have to go back to that. I don't have to feel like I have to stay here at this church, even though I love this church. I don't have to stay here because my worth, my value, my intelligence doesn't end, stop and end at Lionel Lamb Church. Do you get what I'm saying? And you, you know what? Your worth doesn't, find, doesn't stop and end on how successful you are in your job or how much money you make or how much your kids love you or how much, uh, how much your husband or wife loves you. It's all found, all your worth, all your value is found in Christ. I, uh, wrote, I read a book, oh, five years ago, six years ago. Um, I took a class. It was called, uh, it was basically, yeah, it was C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis, everybody probably knows the name. He's most famous for the, the Chronicles of Narnia and the sci-fi series. Um, also some of his, his theological works like Mere Christianity. One of my favorite, actually my favorite book of his is called The Great Divorce. Um, I read that book in about a day. I loved it. It was, it was just awesome. It just, it was one, I don't know if you guys have ever read, uh, there's a certain, you know, a certain type of book, but maybe there's been a book that just, your imagination just goes crazy. And for whatever reason, you're able to run with it in your mind. And that was great divorce for me. Like, I, I could picture everything just so vividly. And I, I, I just, it sucked me in. 
Um, and I wanted to read a section. Essentially what the story is about is, is it's this narrator who's in hell. And, and before I even start there, C.S. Lewis is not trying to, to give his perspective or his doctrinal stance on, on heaven and hell in this book. You know, this is fiction and he, it's an allegory and all that sort of thing. Um, but he, he, the narrator starts in hell and there's this bus and he, he describes hell. And he, he, there's this bus that's actually going to heaven. And as they're traveling to heaven on this bus, all these people in hell are traveling to heaven. They realize that they're, that they're ghosts, especially once they get to heaven, because they realize that everything around, around them is so real and so intense that their bodies can barely take it. That when they step on the grass, they feel like sharp blades because the substance is so real. And my imagination was going crazy when they were talking about this. But from there on in the story, he talks about the ghost interaction with people in heaven. And one of the most pronounced, and, and maybe some of you know where I'm going with this, is the story of the, the little red lizard. And this, what it is, is a narrator talks about this guy that becomes the, uh, starts to walk towards him. And as, as this ghost walks towards him, he notices that there's this little red lizard that's sitting on his shoulder. And, and this angel begins to interact with this little red lizard. And um, guys, think of idolatry. Think about what it looks like as I begin to read this. And I think you'll understand where I'm going with this. It says, and I apologize, this is a little long, but it's, it's so appropriate, um, for especially on this, this idea of unmasking idols. It says, I saw coming towards us a ghost, a visitor from hell, who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was insubstantial, but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged his tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice, the speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's not good, you see, I told this little chap. He indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here. I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall have to go home. And this is where it gets great. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit and angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. And as he step, step, took a step forward, he says, Ah, oh, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Do you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother with you anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I'm, I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there is no time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really don't bother. Look, it's gone. It's, a, it's, it's gone to sleep on its own accord. I'm sure it will be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Do you think so? Well, I think over uh, what you said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. 
It is not so. Why are you hurting me now? I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh no, you think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come in the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You are jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces if you wanted to help me? Why didn't you kill the damn thing without asking me before I knew it would be all over by now if you had? I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I have your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. How can you do what he says? He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Um, and then he goes on and he says, have I have your permission? And the angel of the ghost says, I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did, you're right. It would be better to be dead than living with this creature than I may. And he says, damn and blast you. Go on, can't you get it over? Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering. God help me, God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip and the reptile twisted it while it bit and writhed and then flint broken back on the turf. Um, he goes on in the story to talk about what happens next after this this lizard is is removed from him and that it begins to grow into this this great white horse. Um, I can't help but read that story and not think of idols and how alluring they are. Um, I think we can all place ourselves in, in Scripture that an idol in our lives will reason with you that it has a place, that it has legitimacy in your life. Um, it doesn't. Idols, uh, idols take us away from that which we are called to, which is Christ. Idols, I, idols sound great. They have us making so many excuses for why we are so anemically spiritual. But until we, we embrace the gospel of Christ, they will remain on our lives, whispering lies in our ears. And, and this story makes it plain and simple, guys, that sometimes it's painful. That, that some of you are going through some stuff that, that are real issues that you've had in your own lives, whether it's hurt or brokenness. And so getting rid of these idols and trusting God is absolutely painful. And, and that the idol in your life, through, I think through spiritual influences, will whisper every lie in your ear possible to make you feel like you need that, that you need that acceptance. But we find out in this story that that idol that once it's gone, that the man's liberated, that he's more freer than he could have ever imagined, and that he's more happier than he could ever imagine. And I, I feel that C.S. Lewis got that. He understood what idols do to us, that they make us behave in ways that are so artificial. And guys, until we embrace God and the gospel of Christ, we're going to live anemic lives. And I think that's everything I wanted to say. And so, um, Father, I just pray that you would be with us today, especially now as we enter into worship, Father, Lord, I thank you for Abraham and his example of offering up Isaac, his son. Lord, not in a sense of you trying to be, um, trying to be um, hurtful or um, requiring too much of Abraham in the sense of, of wanting to show us what God, godly worship looks like, that full trust in you looks like, Lord. Lord, I just pray that we would be looking in our lives, that we would just spend a moment in our lives to examine our hearts, to think about what drives us. Lord, and I understand that there, there are broken people here. As much as we would like to think that we're all perfect Christians and that we all have it completely together, Lord, that, that we are broken. And Lord, it's only by your gospel and the death of Christ on the cross that we can find wholeness. And so, Father, I just ask that we would, we would identify these things that we'd confess them to you. 
Lord, and that we would just embrace the truth of the gospel and our identities in Christ, that we are, we are so much now that we have you and that Christ died on the cross for our sins. Lord, we are, we are destined for hell, but because of Christ's death on the cross, we have an ultimate opportunity. And for those that don't know you, Lord, I just pray that they would embrace that. So, Father, would you just inform, uh, in light of the scripture, would you inform our worship so that we can worship now in spirit and truth? Lord, we ask that we give you glory in all things. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.